if you if you go in thinking that you can sort of that, that that music is just about passion and inspiration, and then you can just sort of make something beautiful solely by being authentic, and that it doesn't require some sort of self discipline and restraint, then I think you'll quickly find that um, you, you stagnate because there's no you, you have to be able to re reach back to tradition and revitalize that to to create something beautiful moving forward. You're listening to Conservative Conversations with Marla Slayback and Tom Saroof. Today we're joined by ISI's Chief of Staff and our friend Spencer Cashmanian. He is our Chief of Staff and he's also the lead pianist and I guess founder of the Spencer Cash, I think it's a quartet now, uh, and he's a really good jazz pianist and he talks a lot in the office about uh, his study of the discipline of playing jazz and um, other thoughts on music, so we figured this would be a fun opportunity to talk with one of our colleagues about not only a fun topic and something, I guess, outside of the beaten path of what we would normally talk about on conservative conversations, but also something you know that deeply touches on important questions of human flourishing, human happiness, the soul, and how that relates to political life and our culture. So, Spencer, good of you to join us. Thanks for being on Conservative Conversations. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to, to talk about this. It's a it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart as a practitioner of jazz, a, a musician, but also uh, part of my uh, never-ending quest, my crusade to help the right appreciate jazz a little bit more. So uh, ha happy to do my part. Awesome. And before we get started with our conversation, I'd like to thank our listeners for listening to Conservative Conversations. This podcast is a production of the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, and our mission is Educating for Liberty. If you'd like to help join us in fulfilling our mission, be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to help us reach more listeners like yourself. And to start off, Spencer, I'd love to hear how you got into jazz, uh, what sort of drew you to it initially, maybe what you were listening to beforehand, and how you sort of maybe made a conversion to jazz, and maybe you could even also define like what jazz is. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, as, as, as long as I can remember, music has been a, a huge part of my life. Uh, there's a picture of me somewhere, uh, I think maybe when I was two years old with a set of headphones on. And my mom always says that I was listening to Beethoven in that in that photo. So um, music has always been uh, part of my formation. Uh, and uh, I, I studied classical piano growing up uh, from elementary school through high school and continued playing uh, into college, although I didn't study music in college. But I went to school in New York City. And uh, that is really where I started getting into jazz. I'd listened to jazz before, but in New York, of course, you have this abundance of jazz clubs, a really thriving jazz community there. And uh, we can get into this, but it, it really is the type of music that uh, is, is uh, benefits you to hear it live, to be there in person. And that's really how you apprentice in, in the craft of jazz. So I started getting into playing jazz when I was in New York. In fact, it just happened... Uh, to be the case that my roommate uh, played upright bass and of course I played piano so we uh, sat down and started jamming and, and the magic uh, kind of happened from there and now I live in Pennsylvania and of course uh, work at ISI um, but uh, I moonlight in the evenings as a, as a jazz pianist as a musician working in the Philadelphia area the Delaware area and, uh, and, and love to do that so that's that's kind of how I got into it. Quite a good jazz pianist I might add. No oh, thank you. And Spencer, so when I know commonly, uh, I, I don't, 
I, I have listened to jazz quite a bit, and obviously we're recording this um, right as the Christmas season is kind of kicking off. So I actually wrote a piece like years ago. This was when I was writing for my campus like newspaper that was like non-affiliated with ISI, just you know the, the campus daily. And one of my first pieces that I wrote was about um, how great Christmas time is because you get this uh, revival every year and this appreciation for some of this older, um, and by older I mean you know maybe like seventy-year-old music um, that you you know, normally never listen to throughout the year if you're like a millennial or a Zoomer. Um, so like Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, um, incorporating some of these, the, the elements of jazz music. And it struck me that, you know, this is alongside rap, which I, as someone who listens to rap music, I know that's not like a, not, not like regularly, but I know that's not a popular, you know, conservative opinion. Um, maybe among Zoomers it is, but uh, I know like rap isn't what you think of when you think of, you know, what conservatives like to listen to typically. Um, but those are really great exports of American culture, um, jazz music and also rap. And I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between um, between the, the two, uh, you know, the, the how the, the advent of those two types of music. Um, so could you lead us through kind of what the background of jazz music is, how it became this great, you know, triumph of American culture and uh, the American musical tradition? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right to, to bring up uh, this, the season. I think Christmas is probably the ideal time to, you know, get into jazz. Maybe if you're, if you're not a jazz listener, or maybe you're just a seasonal jazz listener and only listen to it around Christmas. But uh, I think what is uh, particularly helpful with this season is that you have a familiarity with the songs. And, uh, and, and so you can, when you, when you know the song, the underlying song structure, and then you listen to jazz musicians improvise on it, it's sort of, it's more enjoyable, it's more accessible. So if you know Jingle Bells or White Christmas, and actually just a, a couple days ago, I, I came across this recording of Charlie Parker uh, playing, he did a radio broadcast where he played White Christmas. You know, he's just playing a regular jazz set and they asked him to play something Christmassy. And I was sitting there listening to it thinking, you know, this is a great, this would make a great introduction uh, for anyone who's not familiar with jazz and how jazz works, because he plays the melody, he plays the, the chord changes, we would say, as a musician of the song, and then he starts to improvise on it. He starts to elaborate on it and sort of explore the different corners and, and, and the structure of the song. So I would just, anyone listening, I would encourage them, you could just find it on YouTube, look up Charlie Parker playing White Christmas, and, and, and it may make it a little bit more accessible for you if you're not familiar with jazz. But Marlo, to get to your question, uh, this is, it's really how jazz started. Jazz uh, is rooted in uh, the early uh, 20th century, uh, but really coming out of 19th century musical culture. Um, you know, New Orleans is considered the birthplace of jazz. Uh, you had in New Orleans a culture, uh, there was sort of a mixture of, uh, you know, Catholic Spaniards, but also African-American slave culture there, trading culture. And, um, music was so thoroughly uh, uh, involved in every part of their life in that city, um, like many a great city. Music was played at funerals, music was played at weddings, uh, of course at church, and so that's really where jazz got its start, is that there was a music served, uh, you know, sort of social purpose uh, in the city, and so uh, there were people that uh, you, you would sort of recognize as, as the jazz musicians paraded through the city, you'd recognize certain tunes they played, um, you know, you, you, it, was, it was a musical culture. And then what happens is that music starts to get kind of uh, exported over time uh, up the Mississippi, eventually goes to Chicago, New York City. It's one of the things I love about jazz, too, that I think uh, is, is, a, is a distinctly conservative, uh, you know, we might say facet of it is that 
it uh, it's rooted in, in places. You know, there are di distinct jazz styles. There's New Orleans jazz, and it has a very specific sound. But then there's also New York jazz and Chicago jazz. There's Kansas City jazz. All of those have their own distinct traditions that emerge in the course of the 20th century. And some of the great practitioners of jazz you have uh, uh, coming out of that culture, of course, the, the first great hero is Louis Armstrong, who was a uh, astounding musician and improviser. L later became famous as a primarily as a singer, kind of a pop singer, but uh, in the early days of uh, his career was known uh, as primarily as an instrumentalist, as a, as a trumpet player. Um, and so uh, jazz is, is uh, tied to you know social function, I think, is, is, a, is an important um, part of appreciating it. Um, and, uh, and then you have over time, uh, the, the, you might say the summit of jazz was the swing era in the 1940s, where uh, you have jazz becomes both the most popular form of music in the country. People are dancing to it on college campuses and in ballrooms all across the country. Uh, but you also have this astounding uh, uh, level of musicianship um, among bands at that time, uh, particularly bands like Benny Goodman's and Artie Shaw and later Glenn Miller. Uh, so that was sort of the, the summit of jazz's popularity. Uh, and then jazz uh, devolves into, or I shouldn't say devo devolves, but evolves maybe is a better word, into uh, the bebop era uh, and then and hard bop. And that's uh, those are those are musicians like Charlie Parker and later leading into Miles Davis, Dexter Gordon, Dizzy Gillespie, and so on. Um, so that's sort of the kind of a, a broad, you know, 30-second version of, uh, of the history of jazz and how it came about. I want to pick up on that because the devolves word, I think, is... Uh, I guess a little bit pressure. I, I knew you would pick up on that. Talk. Yeah, of course, because um, I'm I listen to metal music and jazz. I think has more than rap or other styles of music. Is jazz would be considered more, I guess, a conservative. Uh, I guess in our day, genre or something to listen to. If you're going to sort of, you know, to make it a critique of music today, I don't think many people are saying, "Oh, jazz is where it all went wrong." They're more looking at, you know, the more obscene things than rap music today or uh, the increasing stupidity of pop music, um, which maybe we can talk about that later. But like metal music gets a lot of brunt of that, especially on the right, especially amongst Christians. But I still think there are conservative elements. But I want to sort of flip the question back on the jazz thing, because if we're talking about sort of movements and evolution in music over time, especially popular music jazz might be considered at least in america the sort of start of popular music as opposed to just straight out and out classical music and so i'm familiar with uh, alan bloom's chapter in the closing of the american mind on music in which he doesn't really talk about jazz he mentions this one very little passing remark that like someone would used to would used to swing along uh in the 30s and they'd sort of recognize what they were doing as slightly degenerate but for the most part they would see that and see classical as the high form of art rather than the low form. And his critique is that with rock music, you see the ascendancy of rock music, you see relativism uh, in music full stop because um, there's this collapse between the high and the low. But I wonder what you think about where jazz fits into the more modern forms of popular music up against the classical 19th century, both in America and across the world and sort of stylistically, I guess, what's your conservative case for jazz? Yeah, um, it, it does have uh, jazz, you know, has had a rocky relationship with uh, 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 the conservative uh, movement, maybe we can say that and, and uh, Bloom actually shares that with uh, with Richard Weaver, who was also critical of jazz, for example, who I think at one point, uh, you know, called it a, a sign of our 
predilection for barbarism or something like that. And, uh, um, you know, usually I think that argument hence, uh, maybe you could distinguish between two different arguments that, that they make. One is that uh, this maybe we call the decadent argument that uh, they, they look back to Plato and they find something in jazz, musically speaking, that is kind of um, malforming the soul as you listen to it. You know, the, the rhythms, let's say the syncopation are sort of not, not good and they're, they're conducive to uh, immorality and, and so on. And so maybe that's one argument we could set aside. And then the, the second argument, I guess, is there's a definitely a conservative suspicion of uh, the popularity of jazz, which is sort of funny to say now because of jazz is sort of this niche thing, but particularly at, you know, in the forties through sixties, maybe when jazz was a little bit more popular, there was this suspicion of, of the popularity of it because there is, and I think not uh, in, in entirely, I don't think this is entirely wrongheaded. I think there's, there's a lot of truth in this, that if something is that popular, you know, there may be a, that, that may be an indication that there's a kind of lowness or mediocrity to it. Uh, there's an opposition between high culture and low culture. Um, but I, I guess I'd say in response to that, um, maybe taking the second argument first is that say I would actually make the case that jazz, especially maybe in the swing era, let's say, but, but I think in general jazz, uh, actually, if, if anything, a, a better analogy might be, it's kind of, uh, it kind of achieves Aristotle's mixed regime where uh, in, in music, which is to say it, 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 uh, jazz is, is a music that is harmonically complex. It's rhythmically complex to play being a musician playing jazz. It's a, it's a complex music to play, uh, but certainly when you do it right, and, and certainly if you're playing swing music, so again, going back to Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, it's also danceable. It's also accessible to sort of the common person just listening to it, and that, that's what I think made it so popular, along with external factors like record, record, produ uh, you know, record producing and, and uh, uh, the radio. Um, I think that's also what contributed, obviously, to making jazz, you know, the, the first great wave of popular music in America as it sort of coincided with with the ability to record and uh, distribute music, uh, you know, on, on, on a mass scale. Um, but I think you see this marriage between it's, it's complex. You have to study the craft in order to actually play this kind of music. It's uh, virtuosic. It's technically demanding and impressive. And that's why when a jazz solo is just playing in a band, you know, often they'll stand up and, and get some acclaim for that solo and people will hoot and holler and cheer them on. If there's a sort of something they play that is, that is especially moving. But it's also accessible, uh, you know, going back to Marlo's point, we all want to listen to Ella Fitzgerald around Christmas uh, or, you know, put on big band music, you know, for certain occasions. Um, I, so I guess that's tackling the, you know, the, the, the second argument, um, you know, back to the first, I could be we could we could talk about this at length. But um, I just don't, I think musically, you know, I'm, I'm unconvinced by, by Alan Bloom and, and, and Richard Weaver say that uh, that the rhythms in jazz, uh, you know, are actually a. Uh, corrupting spiritually somehow, partly because I, I am a classically trained musician and I've played quite a bit of classical music that have rhythms that are similar to what you encounter in jazz. And a syncopation is, you, you can find syncopation in late Beethoven piano sonatas. You can find, you know, a kind of harmonic lushness that has been criticized in jazz you find in Wagner. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm unconvinced on a musical level by, by those arguments, I think maybe, uh, which is not to say that I'm unconvinced by the, by the broader argument, that I think there is, there are kinds of music that can be uh, spiritually corrupting, certainly. I just don't think jazz is one of them. You mentioned popular music and something I always, there's, there's like these TikTok trends sometimes that go around about like, you know, in 50 years from now, we'll be listening to like, you know, like, I don't know, 
like Kendrick Lamar and thinking back on it fondly, like our grandparents would think of like, I don't know, so, like someone who was popular in like the 1950s that bring that brings back this nostalgia. And it's, you know, we all obviously think back on that type of music that our grandparents would be listening to with like, oh, that's that's so, you know, sweet and sentimental. And obviously like the music that we listen to, to today Probably most of it could not be compared to that, whether it's just the quality of the music itself, which is often a product of a lot of a lot of different, you know, like just there's a lot of synthetic and artificial um, intervention and the amount of technology that goes into auto tuning and all of these different aspects of it that kind of deprive music of the like the authenticity of music back in the day, I guess. Um, but even like, like I know my neighbors who are like in their late, like late fifties would really fondly look back on like summer of 69. Right. And like, that's like their song. So how would you think of jazz music in the grand scheme of things when, especially, you know, when we're, maybe this is kind of like historicist in a sense, um, to use the, the phrase that, you know, the, the Straussians really like to talk about, but, um, can we think of music in a way that's separated from its, um, you know, it's objective quality and how does that apply to jazz music when you, you, I mean, we look at it now and say like, of course that's like conservative music, I guess it's, it's, you know, it has um, a lot of these, these features of it that are drawn from other musical traditions that seem to be in harmony with each other. Whereas music today is like Tom said, oftentimes obscene. Um, it's oftentimes just really poor quality singers don't actually know how to sing. Oftentimes they're just like, what people call nepo babies. So there's so many things that go into kind of um, like perverting the the musical experience because of that artif artificiality. So yeah, what would you, what's kind of your response to, to pop music and how we can think of jazz in that context? Yeah, I, uh, I, I do think that there is a, you know, in jazz, uh, there is this inbuilt conservatism that, you know, that I think you, you picked up on Marlo that I don't think, um, you know, maybe carries through as strongly to, to different styles of music, you know, in particular rock um, and sort of and, and, and rap and, and maybe subsequent, you know, sort of uh, new uh, uh, developments, let's say, in pop music. Um, I, I don't think it's gone altogether, but I don't think it's as strong. And, and this is the, the strain that I have in mind is that one thing you'll notice when you talk to jazz musicians is that they they care a lot about what I would call musical genealogies, which is, you know, who taught you who did you learn from? Who have you studied? So the way you actually learn jazz, and um, they even do this in, in conservatories and jazz studies programs, is you transcribe the material of the masters that came before you. You actually have to sit there and listen, right? You just, you know, and the old way to do this was like you had a, had a record player or a tape player where you just kept skipping back until you could finally hear what was, what was being played and you wrote that down on your sheet music. You would transcribe it to learn the language, you know, orally. Um, and so there is this inbuilt veneration for the, the great masters of the craft who came before you. I don't think that carried through, uh, at least, certainly not rhetorically, not, you know, the spirit, I think, was sort of chucked out with uh, 60s counterculture, where it, it just became much more uh, about uh, sort of a self-conscious rebellion, you know, against uh, not only just, the, the, I think, as conservatives, we all agree, the social and, and moral mores of, of the broader culture but that even happened in music i think there was sort of a you know you, you do perhaps even talk to a certain person of a certain age today who who uh it's almost as though music didn't exist before 1960 for them and, and um you know which is interesting to me there's this rupture there's not 
that I don't think is, is present in jazz so much where there's a, you know, jazz has a kind of you know, a hermeneutic of continuity that, that, that goes through it. Um, so I, yeah, I guess those are my, my thoughts on that, Marla. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. I guess like it's as a musician, do you ever, what's your view on just out of curiosity? And I think this could be of interest to people who are like me, where I, I don't really, honestly, I am not a, perhaps Tom is a little bit more of a music buff than I am, but like I listen to like pretty much two kinds of music. Like I listen to like eighties and nineties or even before that country music and like the Arabic music I like, you know, adopted from my, my parents and from like, you know, the community I surround myself with, with is usually the Middle Eastern, you know, Syrians and then um, Levantine people. So um, I'm kind of detached from, I know pop music, but I also, um, in the larger scheme of American music, I sometimes think to myself, like, there's almost this stagnation that I sense with American music, but I, I'm sure we also see this with like movies. Like I was talking about my, talk, talking to my husband about this the other day where um, with Christmas music, movies, I wonder what like the, the financial calculus of it ends up being because every year you can count on people watching these same movies that show like the best like wholesome elements of American culture with some cheeky humor that here and there. So I think of like um, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, like it's just so Americana, Home Alone, you know, one and two, like that, that America doesn't really exist anymore. And there's a reason why we still feel like this nostalgia when even when we didn't really, we're not, you know, if you're like in your 20s, you probably don't remember that time or were even alive during that time period anyways. And I wonder how much of that applies to music too, where um, I don't know how much like novelties of, of like cinema are coming out for the Christmas se season anymore that really draws to the theaters. Same, and maybe the, you know, Barbie, not, not a Christmas movie, but I can think of that as being like, you know, just total blockbuster. Like everyone was like, this is amazing, right? But also draws off of Barbie, which is, you know, a, um, like a staple of American culture. Um, so when we think of music, how much do you think that applies to, is there stagnation? Do you sense a stagnation in music where there's um, not as much innovation happening on that front? Maybe there's a few artists here or there that seem to buck that trend, but overall, will there be a new jazz music or, or am I just totally ignorant of new music cultures that are uh, being created? So, yeah, I think it's interesting. The, um, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about innovation in jazz and other styles of music today. Uh, in, in, in jazz, that, that sort of the rhetoric of innovation. In fact, there's, there's a saying that you'll hear sometimes that innovation is the tradition of jazz. Um, I actually disagree with that statement. I, I think what it gets wrong is that in, the, in, in, in any given age, um, you know, the vast majority of musicians, even excellent mu musicians, aren't great innovators. You do have people like Charlie Parker and Louis Armstrong and, and, and Miles Davis later on that, that um, you know, are great innovators in the music, but there, there are any number of musicians that were recording in, at that time and playing at that time that made made beautiful music that wasn't uh, sort of um, at least self-consciously pushing the envelope. Um, and so if anything, I, I, I do think you're right, Marlo, that I think we are seeing a kind of stagnation in, in music and, and probably in other arts. But um, what's strange to me about it is that it seems to actually be coupled with a lot of rhetoric about, about innovation and being countercultural and sort of, you know, rebelling against... Um, uh, traditional standards in the arts. And, and yet, you know, there's a lot of rhetoric like that, but it's actually leading to a kind of stagnation. Personally, I, I think that that actually has to do with that language of, of innovation and sort of, you know, idolizing uh, 
the, uh, breaking boundaries, even in the arts, actually uh, leads to um, a kind of rejection of a craftsmanship mentality that you really need to have in the arts. That when you're practicing uh, in, in, in art properly, it involves discipline, it involves um, deference to tradition. You know, you're learning. There are, in fact, certain rules, certain boundaries that uh, make something jazz or make it not jazz or make something rock and make it not rock. You know, there, there are sort of clear cut boundaries to all these. They, they may be difficult to define at times, but, you know, there are certain rules to follow. Um, and so I, I actually think that this kind of uh, obsession at times with innovation and, and uh, you know, pu pushing the boundaries can lead to stagnation um, because it, uh, you know, when you have the craftsmanship approach, your concern is to just do something excellently and, and, and something beautifully. And so in that sense, and I, and I would say this about my day-to-day -day experience as a musician, it's actually much more, it's much more like being a, a carpenter where you're just sort of working, you know, sort of carving away at something. And there are even elements of drudgery involved. You, you practice scales and arpeggios and you practice chords and you sort of do these repetitive things day in and day out so that when you do play a show, you have all the tools at your disposal to then create something beautiful. Um, that I think I, I see maybe in uh, um, more broadly in the music industry is a kind of rejection of the patient uh, craftsmanship approach that is required to actually um, you know master this this language. Um, and 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 you know in a way that's yeah I think that's actually leading to stagnation because you're sort of uh, you're you're then going into into shows and into music producing with. Um, with a greatly reduced and perhaps in some cases even no tools on hand, um, you know, you, you, you build those tools by sort of working at the things that, that I'm talking about. And I think if you, uh, you know, if you, if you go in thinking that you can sort of, that, that, that music is just about passion and inspiration and that you can just sort of make something beautiful solely by being authentic and that it doesn't require some sort of self-discipline and restraint, then I think you'll quickly find that, um, you, you stagnate because there's no, you, you have to be able to re reach back to tradition and, and revitalize that to, to create something beautiful moving forward. That's a really insightful point. And I feel like this entire conversation, that's a great point because uh, it's reminding me of this entire conversation is of uh, Joseph Pieper's book on leisure as the basis of culture. And when we were talking earlier about the idea of how music cultivates either forms or maybe malforms the soul um, and, and sort of how Plato talks about that in his Republic, how you need, uh, you need physical education, but you also need musical education for the guardians in order to bring about good order and justice in the, in political life, as we're sort of seeing all of these trends of decadence and I guess spiritual exhaustion in America, whether in our movies or the music, as we're talking about, it reminds me of like our bill, our inability now, according to Pieper, to really do leisure to experience leisure um, and what you're talking about craftsmanship because something one of the I guess one of the things I'm trying to figure out or think about for myself is the relationship between craftsmanship or practice um, and doing these sorts of things that are a retreat from the hustle and bustle and a lot of the noise that we hear today whether that's on Twitter or um, on the news how a retreat or how I guess, I don't know what the word is. Uh, maybe I'll use retreating into some sort of craft or some sort of practice or some sort of um, art can allow us to experience leisure and what the role leisure and cultivation and culture plays in some of the problems that we're having today in society or some of the, like what that might mean as an antidote to um, 
where we are now. I don't know. I'm not, that's not exactly a question, but if you have a response or some some pointers there. Yeah, I think um, you know it's almost as though we, we, we as conservatives, we're familiar with um, sort of this understanding of society. You've got you've got the state, you have government, and you have the individual, but you've got that crucial space in between civil society, which is made up of churches and voluntary associations. And we know that a healthy, flourishing society requires a flourishing civil society. Um, you know, it's almost as though there's there's a there's something similar, you know, in operation at, at the individual and personal level where you have, you know, we all, all of us have to uh, earn our bread by, by the sweat of our brow uh, by going to work. Uh, and then maybe we could say that uh, it, it's it's crucial to, to play, let's say, for lack of a better term, to have, a, you know, sort of uh, pure relaxation. But there's this crucial space in between, which I, I do think, Tom, you're right that, you know, to me, anyway, it seems that this is something we're losing on, on, a, on a grand scale. And, and certainly in the West right now is that crucial space in between is leisure, which is it's a, it has elements of play to it, but it also has elements of work. And that when you're doing something like studying jazz piano or, or sculpture or learning a language, uh, it is fulfilling. Uh, it's enjoyable um, at times, but also at times it can be a bit frustrating because there are going back to what I said before, rules that you have to follow. There are standards um, that make something, you know, objectively, aesthetically right or wrong. And so you, there are these, there's this tradition that stands in judgment over you. And so in, in, in any time, you know, where, where someone stands, you know, over us in judgment, uh, that can be a little bit um, daunting too. And so I think it's, it's um, the, one of the first things to go. And maybe you see a lot of people doing this in the West right now, I think is, uh, jettisoning leisure and their the life just sort of becomes divided between work and sometimes they work a lot and work many hours but then that sort of just becomes a justification for when you when you stop doing you know work let's say servile labor then it's uh you know you just move on to play but you're missing something vital which is um it's it's dignifying and it's ennobling uh, uh for a human being i mean here i would i would i always think of tolkien and tolkien's remarks about uh, humans being sub-creators, that we are made in the image of a God who is first and foremost a creative God. He is, he is the supreme creator. And so we are made in that image. We too, you know, in, in order to be godly, it follows that to be godly as a human being is to create, is to create things. It's to, it's to write stories like the Lord of the Rings and create in, entirely new worlds. And in music, that's creating sonic worlds. It's writing symphonies. It's, it's, it's making jazz records. It's, so we have this, this, um, urge that I think if we suppress it, it's, it's actually dehumanizing, but, but, um, but it's, uh, in, in a way it's almost divinizing, right. Uh, to, to create beautiful things. And so I think we're, we're losing that, um, by sort of crowding leisure out of our, out of our life. That's a great point. And cause I think like leisure, if you're looking at people, he's arguing at once against the people who treat leisure as just leisure equals non-work. He actually sees it as a positive thing that you actually have to work at, and that can be frustrating, like, you know, prayer or, uh, you know, the reason you have a holiday is because there's something divine or something transcendent to which we are connected, uh, and that's not always easy. That's often very difficult if you're talking about prayer or celebrating a mass or doing some, uh, you know, Lexio Divina, whatever it might be that can be, that's something you have to work at or practice. Same thing with music, same thing with other forms of leisure. I think like carpentry is a hobby, since you brought up carpentry, or like other sort of, I guess, 
servile things that could be used for commodification purposes that, that you might do as a hobby. Um, that's These are all practices that you have to cultivate. And it seems to me that a lot of our um, entertainment today, and so this is something that Bloom talks about. This is how he opens his chapter in on music, is that music has taken on an all-encompassing ethos. Uh, like, well, I'll be with my friends or family and I'm just thinking about music because I that's all I want to be around. It's sort of a new god in a way. Um, I wonder if a lot of our entertainment is really a function of the fact that we are bored and we've lost leisure as and the ability to really partake in something higher or transcendent. And this is, I think, one of the main crises of the West is the, not the death of Christianity, it's still alive and well, but um, the ascendance of a secular culture as opposed to and apart from Christianity. So I guess my question for you is, and as we're thinking about the idea of recovering or bringing back a sense of cultivation from your perspective as a jazz musician, as an avid jazz listener, maybe some of our listeners want to get into jazz. What would you say, not only in the jazz space, but more widely, but how you can, how people can appreciate jazz, how people can um, start to recover a sense of doing the work that's required to, you know, cultivate leisure again? Yeah, I think uh, that's a, it's a great question. Um, because in, in some sense, you know, when I, I, I go back and read Alan Bloom talking about this. Uh, in a way, I'm actually kind of jealous of, uh, I think he was uh, writing in uh, the 80, late 80s, maybe. Um, and, uh, you know, I find myself sort of jealous of, uh, of, of that time period because he says that uh, the only thing that these students take seriously uh, is, is music. I'm not sure that's true today. I think actually we don't we don't take music very seriously. I think we I think we hear a lot of music but don't uh, listen to a lot of music. Um, you know that that would be my observation more broadly is that music and, and Roger Scruton writes uh, elo eloquently about this that pop music sort of assaults our ears at every twist and turn. We go go into you know a restaurant or or the grocery store and you just sort of always hear music playing. Um, but what that can lead to is a uh, uh, a, a relationship with music where you're, you're never really intentionally listening to it. So the first thing I would say is actually uh, set aside time to, to practice intentional listening to music, which is, and this is where it can be really helpful to maybe even, you know, go old school and get something like a record player that sort of crowds out, you know, digital distractions. And you say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to sit down just like I would sit down and watch a movie with, with, you know, my spouse or my kids. I'm, I'm on, I'm also going to sit down on the couch and take, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes to listen to a Beethoven symphony or to listen to this Art Blakey record. And I'm going to really listen to it. And, and, and you will, by practicing that, that kind of an ex uh, musical encounter, I guarantee over time, and you could just, you know, pick a piece of music and say, I'm going to do that every night for a week. Um, or maybe you do it once a week, you know, and I'll, I'll in my family, we have kind of a, a tradition where I have young children that are all three that are all under the age of six. And so we do music Monday in our house where, you know, there most of the week we sort of read stories before bed and, and, you know, do the normal bedtime routine. But on Mondays, we actually, um, after dinner, we sit on the couch and we put on a piece of music and, and everyone just has to listen to that. And maybe I'll talk a little bit about it beforehand, but, but just like we would watch a movie, you sit down and listen to music and that'll, that'll accustom, get you accustomed to following what I would say is, you know, kind of the structure and syntax of a, of a different, um, piece of music. 
Um, so practice really intentional listening. Um, and then and I could share some specific listening you know, recommendations maybe for someone who, who wants to get into jazz. Maybe I could do that if you're interested. Uh, one thing I'll say, going back to a point you made uh, early on in your question, is that uh, I do think we, we've also lost um, this sense that music, you know, w w part of the reason Plato uh, saw the, the, the potency, the power of music is that in, in ancient Greece, and in fact, most of the history of the West, there was this understanding that music, like any other art form, like sculpture, like painting, um, that it expresses something uh, deep and true and permanent about reality and about the structure of the cosmos itself. So this saying that you hear sometimes, the music of the spheres, you know, that, that goes back to ancient Greece and the Pythagoreans, and there really, there really was a, a, a belief that music, that the intervals in music, that when you played a triad chord on the piano or you, or you played a, a fourth or a or six, you these different intervals, that in some way, some mysterious way, the reason why they sounded harmonious or the reason why they sounded discordant is because they were echoing some kind of interval, intervallic structure in, in the universe itself. So they really thought that there was a kind of music that was being produced by the movements of the planetary bodies, you know, the celestial bodies, and that uh, music, you know, was, was either beautiful or discordant, uh, you know, to the degree that it actually properly expressed those those intervals in the cosmos itself but that that is something that we have lost um now there is there is just you know i, I think and, and maybe you could you could argue about this I'm, I'm no expert in this you know you could you could locate the beginnings of this in romanticism maybe it's later maybe it's maybe it's not until modernism postmodernism. certainly I, I think broadly what you've seen in the west is we've lost this sense that music is actually representational like the other arts uh it's very easy to see how painting is representational because you're, you're painting rea reality or painting a portrait of someone or so on. Um, it's very easy to see how sculpture is representational. It's not as easy with music, but um, it, which has led to, I think, now an understanding that music is, or, or a view that music is just about self-expression and sort of being passionate and play what you feel, man. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, that that actually is, is, a, is a pretty radical departure from most of Western history uh and, and and the west's relationship to music that music actually is representational in the sense that it's expressing the music of the spheres some some order in the universe and so um we, we've lost that and, and that's something that we have to recover and so uh one, one way we can do that again is by practicing intentional listening to music um and, and second of all i would say listen to music in person don't just um you know only listen to recordings but uh, try to try to if you don't play music yourself invite people into your home who do play instruments or sing and listen to music in person and make it communal uh, because that's a very different experience than just listening to um, you know something that's uh, on a streaming service well those are all great recommendations spencer um and i think this is a great place where we can wrap up so if people want to follow more of your work if people want to hear you play what would you recommend to our listeners to find you find more of your stuff yeah sure if you want to follow my own uh musical adventures probably uh, instagram is the best best place uh, to get connected and that's uh, at spencer cash piano that's k-a-s-h spencer cash piano so you can find me there um there's probably some stuff uh on youtube as well if you, if you search my name um but uh yeah if in, in anyone who's in the the broader Philly and Delaware region certainly is uh, welcome to, to come out and, and hear me play sometime. 
Awesome. And I also recommend that. It's always a fun evening, Spencer. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for listening to Conservative Conversations with ISI. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to head over to our website at isi.org slash resources to see all that we offer our members, including the Intercollegiate Review, select Modern Age articles, debates, lectures, and of course, this podcast. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to rate and review, and we will see you next time on Conservative Conversations with ISI.